Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome to a brand new episode of Batman Nightcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network that chronicles the legendary comic book adventures of the Cape Crusader. I'm Ryan Daly. And I'm Chris Franklin. And we're back, as promised, to kick off two different trilogies appearing in Batman comics that will span the next few episodes of this show. But before we get to that, Chris, happy 2021. Same to you, Ryan, and it's great to be out of, to leap from the raging dumpster fire that was 2020. We, 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 we made it out of there. You know, I've seen all these things. I survived 2020, and unfortunately, I mean, not to bring the show down, there's a lot of people that didn't survive 2020, and, uh, but we don't want to be that heavy handed here starting a show. But on the funny side of things, yes, if you're listening to this, you survived 2020. So congratulations to everybody, and thank goodness you made it. That's all I can say at this point. <laughs> and if you look around, you see that everything is always sunny and wonderful. Um, there, there's no rampant disease or pandemic like that was confined just to last year. Our political situation is wonderfully you know, humming along gloriously. You know, just th- things are like it's a new year, brand new day. Everything is fine. That's that's what that's right. That's what we were promised. <laughs> just like flying cars in the future, we were promised this year would be better. And my jetpack supposed to deliver tomorrow. I don't know about you, but <laughs> yeah. it's coming in. Yeah. <laughs> All the holiday shipping might have delayed it. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking of the holidays, uh, did you get anything either Batman? specifically or superhero related anything what was like your geekiest uh, holiday presents everything i got was geeky actually you know um i i actually got a lot of uh throwback christmas presents i got uh it was 1982 all over again because i got those new uh, masters of the universe origins they don't really say origins on it but that's what mattel's calling it origins line where they've basically taken the original figures and mm-hmm. and re-sculpted them to have more modern articulation i've yeah. got he-Man, Skeletor, and Battle Cat, which is what I got for Christmas in 82, my, minus Castle Grayskull, which isn't out yet. But uh, uh, I don't know if I'll go that big. That's a lot of space, and I still got my original. But um, I got that. I got a I got a cool Batmobile Lego set. That, it's, a, it's a Batmobile that looks quite a bit like the... Uh, the 1989 Batmobile, but it's it's in the regular Lego line because the actual 1989 Batmobile is like $250 or something like that. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I got uh, I got uh, for our purposes what we talk about. Eagle Moss puts out those wonderful Batmobiles and all the different Bat vehicles diecast, and then you get the little magazine with them that you know uh, tells the history of it. And I, I've got a few of those. I really wish I'd got in on the ground floor with that and just got them all. I don't know what the hell I would do with them. <laughs> uh, but uh, somebody had sold a bunch of those to our local comic shop, Heroes Realm, and uh, I eyeballed a Robin cycle from the <laughs> 70s. And uh, so that I got that from Cindy. She got me that. So that that's uh, that's right in the wheelhouse of our Bronze Age Batman coverage. So it, you know it showed up in the uh, in the Englehart Rogers run. You know, so because uh, Robin you know rocketed out of his his seventies van on his Robin cycle. So I'm sure I'm forgetting something super obvious that uh, you know I, I, it's a I'm spoiled rotten guys. I get so much geeky stuff at Christmas time. It's not even funny. How about you, Ryan? I mean, for myself, I I got my I got myself a bunch of like comics and graphic novels and stuff like that. Um, more, more of it was like stuff for for Reese. That was kind of like the bigger thing. Um, and, and 
believe me, I, I've seen some of those old he, the the He Man and Masters of the Universe things, and I was just like, no, I have to draw the line. I can't. I can't go down this rabbit hole because <laughs> I'm I'm already getting um a bunch of like Transformers that look like my like the original G1 like 1984 wave. Um, and I'm, I'm getting them and I'm storing them downstairs. I'm going to give them to Reese when he's like five or six, when he's a little bit older, when he can do it. He doesn't need mm. them right now. So for the moment, for the meantime, I'm just hoarding them and I've got like 20 of them so far. I'm going to like space them out over like an entire year that I give them to him. Um, but yeah, the, like the coolest thing that I was really proud of is, you know, Hasbro has their Marvel Legends line, which is their six inch based on their Marvel comics and movies and everything like that, and even video games now. Um, they just started this new line, which I, I, I guess how, how far it goes will depend on their sales. Um, but it's, it's this retro line where they're like three and three quarter inch figures only have a little bit of, like, I think, six points of articulation that's it or seven but they i mean they look like old school like almost the like the secret wars era um you can obviously tell the difference because they're the molds are a little bit different they don't look quite like that but it definitely evokes that spirit and the card art um is really old school like representation of that it looks like it's just a blast from like the the 70s or 80s um, so it's kind of weird. It's like, it, I, I think it's supposed to ping my nostalgia buttons, which it definitely does. Um, but at the same time, I got them, and the first six, I got them for Reese because he can play with them and he can interact with them. And they're not so expensive and detailed that, you know, if they break, you know, uh, you know, he's not ruining my Marvel Legends. You know, I'm, I'm hoping that this is kind of be part of the gateway so that he knows these characters and he has more fun with them. And so far he does. I mean, he got so many toys too so he's you know he he plays with a little bit at a time and kind of like cycles through but it's cool i mean now he he, it's it's helping him kind of like pick up these characters and he'll he knows i I mean he already knew spider-man and hulk just from various merchandise and books and stuff but now he knows who iron man is and he recognizes electro from like a little golden book that i have it's it's weird but yeah it's fun that's cool. Yeah, I I got actually got Captain America and Black Panther yeah. from that set. I need to get the other two, but I I love them. I love the card art on them. I'm oh, you yeah. know as a graph as a graphic designer, I've kind of bemoaned this this over you know just the style got art just plastered everywhere, and this is like new artwork and um it's 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 beautiful i mean it's just it's awesome and it's kind of funny you know you go from you're talking about giving those to reese you'll go from that to uh you know uh getting in mezco figures is what <laughs> like what what andrew got he got a like uh mezco batman beyond it was out a couple of years ago but uh santa claus managed to find him one you know uh so uh, and uh and 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 you know danny got a a bunch of Legos, including Diagon Alley from Harry Potter. I mean, the, the I mean, the whole freaking alley, you know, <laughs> it took, and she built it in like two days. I'm like, slow down and enjoy it. And she's like, no, I got to build it. So she'd like over two days and she would have got it done in one. If we had, it's like, we got to go over to, you know, your papas and have Christmas dinner. Okay. No, that's <laughs> oh yeah. Reese, whatever he plays with like building blocks. We, he doesn't have like the Legos, but he's got like the Duplos or like the, the you know, the bigger sets and everything. And every time he starts making something like that, I'm like, mm, is he going to get into Legos? Am I going to have to get a $300 millennium Falcon for him? <laughs> you might, you just might. Yeah. <laughs> for him, obviously it's for the for child. Him. Just for him. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, he needs the death star, honey. He needs it. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I did. I didn't get anything Batman related, but uh, I, I still had Batman on the brain because over the holidays, I've been thinking about the comics that we're going to talk about. How about that for a segue, people? I, that that was a good segue. Yeah, I, and you know, if we're if we're going to talk, you know, comics, we should probably talk in chronological order, don't you think? Yeah. So we've got uh, we've got a pair of books as we talked about on the last episode. Uh, the next three episodes, we're going to be looking at the original Man Bat trilogy of stories from Frank Robbins and Neil Adams, uh, and then we're also going to be talking about Batman Dark Knight Dark City from 1990. But yeah, I think chronologically we'll start off with yours. So you want to lead us off? Yes, I'd be glad to. So Detective Comics number 400 was covered dated June 1970. But according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the the Bible for podcasters, basically, uh, was on sale April 30th, 1970. On this cover by Neil Adams, a symbolically giant Batman looms over Gotham City, coming face to face with an equally large creature which took his shtick and doubled down on it. With large, flared ears, claws, and wings, this monstrous being offers up, as the cover blurb tells us, the challenge of the man-bat. We also get a banner that reads, 400 smash issue in that detective logo from this era that I really don't like, although this time, at least, it's not lopsided. And I know, Martin Gray, you like it, but I don't. It reads, Detective Comics presents Batman, Robin, and Batgirl, and there are tiny Carmine Infantino images of Bat, uh, Batgirl and Robin on the sides of the logo. What do you think of this one, Ryan? I love the cover art. Um, and I overall, I do. I love this cover. Uh, I do think that it is top-heavy with text. Um, between the logo, as we have talked about, which is already a little bit too big with Detective Comics starring Batman and Batgirl and Robin and everybody else. And we're going to show you their little picture so you know which characters we're talking about. And then you've got 400 smashes you, and then you've also got the blurb with te- Challenge of the Main that it just feels there's a lot going on at the top that I don't care about because the image that Neil Adams gives us on that cover is so great of Batman and the man bat leaning, like going to town. Like it symbolically looks like they're battling for the city. Like the city's only big enough for one of them. That's how big they are. Um, so yeah, I, I love that art. I love the picture. There's something interesting about the man bat on the cover that I'm going to save until we actually talk about the story. So I'll come back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I like this one a lot. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with everything. I, I think it's a really strong image. The lighting is is really nice. I mean, you know, Batman's chest and uh, underneath his chin and his legs are all lit, you know, like this yellow white light. And so is Man Bat. It's it's probably Adams pushing the, the production department to do things that they've never done before again. You know, um, it's it's just really strong. And, and um you know, when Adams draws giant looming figures over Gotham City, it makes for a great cover. You know, uh, <laughs> Batman two fifty one. You know, uh, so uh, so yeah, it's it's a it's a classic as far as I'm concerned. I that logo, yeah. Uh, I <laughs> I wish for the four hundredth issue they'd gone back to like the old Detective Comics banner at least. You know, up top or something, but they didn't. But uh, I, I do think it's kind of cool. You know, this. We take it for granted now, but back then, the 100th issue of something, and they usually would say, you know, they'd make somewhat of a deal of it, but a lot of times they'd let 
anniversary issues just slide by and never even acknowledge it on the cover so at least they do here so but yeah and i, I know what you're I, i've got your no uh, i think i know where you're going with your man bat talk so we'll have a nice discussion about that so Jumping inside the challenge of the man bat. Well, the story was by Frank Robbins, Art Neil Adams, and Dick Giordano. Letters John Costanza. Editor was Julius Schwartz. Kirk Langstrom prepares an exhibit on bats for the Gotham Museum of Natural History, but unbeknownst to the curator, Langstrom is doing unauthorized work with the flying rodents in the museum after hours as well. Langstrom extracts blood from a live bat in the hopes of having abilities even Batman doesn't possess. Elsewhere, in the underground tunnels beneath Gotham, a gang of thieves try out their new equipment to rob in the dark. With light-intensifying goggles, foam-soled shoes, and ultrasonic cutting tools, the clever crooks feel they are undetectable, until a clumsy one drops the ultrasonic tool. The clanging sound alerts the Batman, who is soon on top of the gang, although he can't see them. They can see him, and after a brief tussle, they scatter to the winds, leaving the masked manhunter to find the discarded sonic device. The gang decides to use this to their advantage, knowing Batman will hone in on the frequency of the tool if they use a similar one again. So they decide to set up an ambush at the museum the following night, while availing themselves to the gem collection housed there. In that very museum, Kirk Langstrom completes his course in Mad Science 101 by taking the last dose of the bat gland extract, in the hopes of developing ultra-sensitive hearing. Langstrom's extract works too well, making the sound of a dripping faucet unbearable, and an unforeseen side effect has him becoming averse to bright lights as well. Searching for his sunglasses, he finds he can navigate in utter darkness and theorizes his vocal cords are now emitting supersonic signals, giving him the bat's natural sonar abilities as he desired. In his lab in the Wayne Foundation building, Bruce Wayne attempts to amplify his hearing as well via a set of special stereo locator earplugs. He has Alfred sneak about the penthouse in darkness, but is able to detect the heartbeat of his stealthy butler with his new gadget. Bruce then analyzes the sound of the ultrasonic tool and sets about creating a location finder based on that frequency. Across town, Kirk Langstrom's experiments prove even more successful, much to his own horror. Leaving the museum for home, Langstrom notices his hands have become hairy and claw-like. Scrambling for gloves, his hat is mysteriously pushed off his head. Langstrom runs to a mirror and is horrified by what looks back at him. He has giant ears, red eyes, fur instead of skin. He has become a man-bat. Frantically, Langstrom runs back to his lab to begin work on a cure and is further shaken by the chattering sounds of the caged bats who are confused by his changed nature. Knowing he can't leave in this state, he makes a phone call. The next morning, curator Wilkins receives a telegram from Langstrom telling him he has left for Chicago to care for his ailing mother. Wilkins looks up at the unfinished exhibit and wonders if Langstrom will make it back in time for the opening. What he doesn't notice is among the paper mache bats and stalactites hangs Langstrom himself. When he awakens that night, he is shocked to learn he has slept as a bat does, hanging upside down all day with superhuman strength. A famished Langstrom runs to the cafeteria for food, while elsewhere, in the gem collection wing of the museum, the Blackout Gang turns on their sonic tool and sets the trap for Batman. 
In his new Batmobile, the Cape Crusader picks up the signal, and he is soon once more swinging into the midst of the gang, hidden in the shadows. The gang is surprised when Batman manages to land a punch on one of them, following their heartbeats. But the clever gang leader has prepared for such tactics, and releases a hail of ping-pong balls on the floor. The sound distracts Batman long enough for the gang to dogpile on him. Gallantly, the Batman fights back against them, but their number is too large. The leader readies his blackjack to strike when he sees a hideous figure running towards them. Langstrom tears into the blackout gang, using his superior strength to throw them around like rag dolls. When one attempts to shoot him with the ultrasonic gun, Batman kicks it out of his hand. With his second win, Batman joins his new ally as they mop up the floor with the black-clad crew. Langstrom attempts to make a hasty retreat, but Batman wants to know more about the man who saved his life. Batman turns on a flashlight, hoping to see the face of his new friend, but Langstrom shrieks away from the light. He tells Batman it was his inspiration that brought this condition upon him. Batman doesn't understand why he would want to hide from him if he was his hero. In answer, Langstrom steps toward the light, revealing his horrible visage. Batman is shocked by how this new hero has upped his game in both appearance and abilities, becoming more of a bat than he ever could be. He comments on his awe-inspiring disguise, which sets the emotionally devastated Langstrom off. He slaps the flashlight from Batman's hand and runs off into the shadows of the museum. Batman feels he owes his savior his desired privacy, but wonders, if they meet again, will it be as friend or foe? So what do you think of this one, Ryan? It's a classic story. It's it's such a fun one. I, gosh, I it's been a while since I've read this, and, you know... Having you know gone over the secret origin and everything like that, and and like lived with the character of the main bet for a while, I, I was surprised at some of the details in this story that I had completely forgotten about or taken for granted. Uh, and we'll go through those, um, but like a lot of it was just like how little we actually know about Langstrom in the story. Um, but overall, it's it's such a fun story. I mean, the art is great. Um, we get like a lot of little details. We get to see Batman using his head, uh, creating new gadgets, anticipating these things. Um, the man bats. I mean, you can say that they were you know lifting some ideas that Stanley and Steve Ditko may have had across the street. But it's you know it, it works for the story. I mean, Batman has allowed one of those. Uh, my copy of the story is from the Man Bat issue one uh, reprint, which was from 1984. It reprinted all three of the stories uh, that we're going to be talking about. So I'm not sure if this, how close this is to the original coloring, um, but at least it's, I mean, it's not the digital coloring that has been done, and, and certainly the art hasn't been retweaked by Adams in this one. So the, yeah. it, it looks like the original. The coloring might be slightly different, but yeah. I, I, I've actually got Detective 400. Um, I've got all the Adams drawn man bad issues. I picked those up, uh, early on when I first made it to comic shops, you know, God, 30 some years ago. <laughs> um, I had, as people who listen to the network, other shows know, I was a huge fan of the Robin meets man bat power record. That was my favorite power record. Um, that made me a fan of man bat man bat was appearing in, uh, like detective comics at the time. And he had been in Batman family as a, as a strip when I got that comic. So I was, you know, I was more aware of, uh, you know, I, I was aware of the early days of man bat, you know, because of the power records. And then when he was actually like a support hero, you know, a, a member, actual member of the Batman family, but I picked those comics up and, and, uh, you know, of course, years later, you know, Rob does a power records episode of, um, 
of the Fire and Water podcast uh, back when it was just the the, Aqu- the Aquaman Firestorm show. And because uh, Shaq's going to be out of town, he asked me, hey, do you want to be on uh, Power Records? I'm going to do Robin Meets Man Bat. And uh, so if it wasn't for Man Bat, I wouldn't be here right now. <laughs> we wouldn't be having this conversation. So That I'll, was your first one. That was my first podcast. That was that was the one where Rob pulled up his, you know, black no window candy van and said, "Hey, you know, <laughs> do you want to do a podcast?" Uh, he lo- he loves it when I make that analogy, which is why I brought it up. Uh, so so yeah, it's uh, yeah, and, and, and you know, uh, over the years, you know, I've read up on on Man Bat and you know the creation of them and and in the uh, the the wonderful Tomorrow's book that we're uh, that we're constantly referencing the Batcave Companion and Michael Cronenberg and and uh, and uh, Michael Urey, Neil Adams relates to Cronenberg that he had the idea for Man Bat. He had this. He had the the, the basic idea that we read uh, in his head, and he wanted to go pitch it to Julius Schwartz, but he knew that Julius Schwartz was notorious for throwing out a writer's first idea hmm. uh, because Julius Schwartz liked to plot the stories out with the writers and. Uh, you know, like we've said before, Julie probably should have had a co-plot credit on just about every comic that he edited, huh. you know, um, by, by today's standards. But basically, he Adams came in and uh, Frank Robbins and Julie were in Julie's office for a long time. And he could kind of tell that their story session wasn't going great. So he came in and Julie's like, well, do you've got some kind of Batman story, Adams? And he's like, yeah, actually, I do. And he told him about Man Bat. And he's like, ah, yeah, I don't know. And. And and Frank Robbins was all excited about it, but then Adams was like, "Well, if you don't want to do it, Julie, you know, Marvel can bring out a character called Man Bat, and there's nothing DC can do about it if you don't do it first. And <laughs> and uh, that was his, you know, that was his little secret weapon there. And that got I was like, okay, okay, all right, all right. Well, let's, you know, give you got to give it to to Frank here to write. And he's like, oh yeah, no problem. He said, will you draw it? And he's like, yeah, I'll be glad to draw it. You know, so mm-hmm. that's how he got that's how he got Man Bat pushed through. So. You know, he had to use a little. He had to use Marvel as a scare tactic, basically. To, <laughs> so I, I, I thought that was a that's a cute little that's a cute little story. And I guess this is the first time we've uh, talked about Frank Robbins. He was a writer that came on the Batman books at the tail end, like basically right as the TV show was ending. And um, the comics are kind of in this state of flux in like '68. Uh, you know, before we get to the big change as as Schwartz was promoting it in like night, late 1969, early 1970, when Dick sent off to college and and we get the secret of the waiting graves and you know we get basically a sh- Batman moves to Gotham, but uh, Frank Robbins had been uh, well, well at this time actually still was doing a newspaper strip called Johnny Hazard, which was an aviation uh, strip, a little bit like uh, Milton Kniff's uh, Steve Canyon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he uh, had been working on that for years at this point, but the circulation had kind of died down on it, so he was looking for supplemental work, and I think it ran until 1977, but he came to D.C. and started writing comics for, for Julie, and occasionally he would draw one, although most... Most comic fans of the time weren't real big fans of his art, especially on Batman. But um, he hasn't drawn a Batman comic at this point yet. He will draw a later, a couple later Man Bat stories, uh, or at least one anyway. But uh, so yeah, I guess it's the first time we always talk about Denny O'Neill. But Frank Robbins was right in there with Denny during this big change period. So 
Yeah, and his career has always struck me as a little bit funny because it seems to be backwards from everybody else. It seems like a lot of artists, you know, start off in as pencilers or inkers or something like that, and then after they get established, they start to kind of do as well. Um, I'm really thinking like later in the game, like in the 80s and and 90s. Then you know, once they've you know had like a hit, they kind of establish. You know, let me take on you know both duties, and I can you know I'll I'll do some shortcuts because I can write and draw the story at the same time. And I'm thinking of the guys like Byrne and Frank Miller and Walt Simonson, you know those guys. Um, right. And, but then a lot of times they'll just they'll transition artists transition just to the writing game because at that point they they've kind of known you know the the format the works of the story it's also just it it's faster they can write more books in a month than they can draw with you know maybe unless you're Jack Kirby or something like that right um, so <laughs> it just seemed like kind of like the natural evolution and also I mean you know your body kind of deteriorates over time if you're in that game you know your hands get weaker, your eyes get weaker, it gets harder to draw at that level. So it seems like the natural evolution for a lot of people in the the biz, if they do both writing and artist, is they start off as an artist, and as they get older, they become writers. Frank Robbins seemed to be the opposite. He started off, like, he, I mean, he did have he did have art as his background, but once he starts working at DC, for years, he's just the writer. And that's, that's what he was working on. And then he would occasionally come in as an artist. But then you jump over when he goes over to Marvel and he's the artist on The Invaders for Roy Thomas. And he does right. a bunch of other drawing gigs. It's like, how did he go from writing to art? That seems backwards to me. Yeah, and I mean, if you go by, like, these guys that start out working on, you know, uh, corporate-owned properties and then they move on to their own creator-owned stuff, yeah. he kind of did that backwards, too, because I'm assuming he had some stake in Johnny Hazard. He pro- the syndicate probably owned it, but... You know, he probably had some kind of nice contract, and and he goes from that to, uh, you know, working for hire at Marvel and for a DC, and then and and then Marvel, and then at by the end at Marvel, like you said, he's just drawing like uh, Captain America invaders, and then the Human Fly, which I know Max Max Romero's ears just perked up because we yeah. said Human Fly. Yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah, man from Atlantis <laughs> adaptation too, yeah, man from Atlantis, yeah, he yeah he's yeah. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah, I, he he's he's an interesting guy. And I mean, he, I think he was an older older fella, you know, by the time, you know, he was kind of an older guy entering the comics field as all these young bucks were coming in, you know, these all these guys, some of these guys were in their teens, you know, your your Jerry Conways and your Wolfman and Lynn Wein were barely out of their teens or in their teens when they started. So and then Frank Robbins is probably this middle-aged guy that's entering the <laughs> entering the comic field. It's he's he's a, he's an interesting standout in the in the Bronze Age, you know, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah really, so. <laughs> we'll get in here in the story bit by bit. You know, you were you know you said that about there were some things that that kind of stood out to you. Uh, having listened to the the power records over and over and and basically i don't even have to listen to it it's just like in my brain i listened to it so much as a kid the the recap of of this issue in that comic because batman relates how he met man bat and they even pull some of the artwork from this issue into that into that comic and then adams draws new art around it but um you know there's some things in here that aren't mentioned like uh First, there's no Francine Langstrom. She's never mentioned. Right. Uh, you know, second, we never hear Kirk called Professor Langstrom. We can assume he is, but since he's never called that or, or given his actual title, we don't know. I mean, is he a biologist? Is he, is he specializing in 
uh, I'm probably going to butcher this, but Chiroptera, the you know study of bats, is he a, is he just a curator with a knack for biology? I mean, I mean that was that was my question as I was rereading it. I was like, okay, he's setting up a, a bat display exhibit for the Natural History Museum, but then when like the the when the boss leaves, then he starts doing some secret biological experiments. I was like, what kind of doctor is he? What is the purpose? Like, and is he doing those experiments on site in the museum? Like, I was like, that doesn't seem like the place, but it also seems like he has to hide this. So do they, uh, I mean, he, he says, you know, like that this can be, I mean, is his goal to be a crime fighter to like use the, the, these new traits to help him fight a war on crime like Batman? Or is it like, yeah, like the, the whole motivation because we don't know anything about him personally yet. Yeah, I mean his the one line that we get early on is he said and as soon as I'll and soon I will have a natural ability even the great Batman doesn't possess and he's got this this grin like this kinda almost sinister grin on his face as he's extracting blood from this bat he's got pinned down, you know. And yeah, yeah, I it, exactly. It's like we kinda fill in from later Man Bat stories and later Man Bat adaptations into into Power Records, into the animated series and 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 things like that. But but really right here all we know is Kirk Langstrom is apparently some kind of expert in bats, works at a museum, is experimenting with bats to extract their glands to give him bat like abilities, but you know, in other stories, Bat and actually in the Power Records, I keep referencing that. But Batman says he created the gland extract as a gift for me, but he doesn't say that really in this particular story. So, right, right. And, it, and another thing, why is he dressed like Barnabas Collins? That was my other question. I was like, why is he wearing a cape? It's 1970. Like, a, and then, but then I was like, I was like, oh man, this is like. Like, so much of his story in this is, like, right out of universal horror or hammer horror. I was like, Gene Colan did the same thing, you know, when, like, something about, like, the horror of the 1970s and everything. Like, the way these guys were drawn, everybody looked like it was a hundred years earlier. <laughs> They're drawing, like, these, these are Victorian characters. But, yeah, I'm like, why... Why is he wearing a cape? <laughs> yeah, I mean he's got the yeah. he's got the, the there's a and name for that. Yeah, later on he'll have he has the trench coat, but it has the, the sort of like the the half cape behind it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, he's got he's got a cape on. Yeah, you're right at the first, and then he's got that on. It looks that's particularly the Barnabas Collins look that yeah, that yes. that cloak with the yep. Inveris cloak or whatever it's called with yeah, the yeah. the flap uh, basically up, up top. Yeah. It's like he just needs a wolf head cane, you know, and he's freaking Barnabas. Of course, it was 1970. Dark Shadows was huge. So right. well, <laughs> I don't know well, if that yeah. had any influence or not. Yeah, so. yeah absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, like I, I'm reading this and I'm like, I'm I'm projecting all this other information. I'm like, wait, isn't he supposed to be deaf? Isn't that why he was? I was like, no, wait, that was, was that a retcon just based on like trying to make him even more like the lizard? Like he was trying to cure this thing? I'm like, when, okay, so when did that come out? So yeah, it was it was funny having to go through this and realize, I was like, wow, it, it, this very first story, they really give you no information about this guy. And it was funny. And, and then like the other thing that I wanted to come back to from the cover is in, in this actual story, he doesn't have wings. No, like that—that that doesn't come up. Like he's always dressed in in clothes. We get he gets the like the the man bat's face and kind of like the furry clawed hands, 
But other than that, he's completely human form, which again, kind of going back to making it seem more like a universal monster story thing like that. It's only on the cover and then the little preview, like half pa- half page thing at the ba- at the bottom on the last page where it's, which will it be and which role will the man bat re-enter Batman's life? And you see the two of them squaring off over across different um, different rooftops. And in that one, it shows him, you know, like shirtless with the wings spread out, but the wings aren't attached to his arms. Right. They don't look like they, they might not be attached to his arms on the cover either. It's just it's kind of hard to tell. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, they're they're because they're kind of if they are attached to his arms or not attached in the same way because that they will be later. But, yeah, they're definitely they're like Hawkman wings mm-hmm. uh, in that lip at the bottom. And, you know, of course, later interpretations, starting with the starting with the animated series, even go so far as to to actually make, you know, take away some of his fingers and have them actually become part of the wings like an actual bat. But, you know, for the most part, the the design that from the 70s, Adam's design, once he gets the wings in the comics, you know, the 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 wings end at his wrists and his hands are, you know, free there's still claws but you know he's he's got he's got hands um but yeah so this is this is like he's got wings like coming off his back uh in that in that last image but yeah he does not have any wings and, and you're right that uh the the fully clothed uh, monster kind of reminds me of course the wolfman always had you know he even bothered to change his clothes when he changed in the first movie but um <laughs> which i think is hilarious but it reminds me even more of um of Werewolf of London, where he like you know put on the little the jaunty cap and the scarf and went out you know as as a werewolf you know <laughs> yeah he puts on this nice cloak and and uh, yeah it's 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 uh, it's kind of interesting and you know you brought up you brought up the lizard and you know I know Shag ripped Man Bat a new one on the Who's Who podcast because he's like he's just the lizard and yeah I you know maybe Neil Adams was paying a little too close of attention to. Uh, to what was going on at Marvel, and he didn't tell Julia Schwartz that hey, Marvel's got this guy called the Spider-Man's got this guy called the Lizard. But they both owe a, a whole whole lot to to Robert Louis Stevenson's Doctor yeah. Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, the animal specificity to to it, I just think I murdered that word, but you know, the specifics to the the animal side, the specific you know animal traits. Right. Yeah, that's you can say yeah, maybe Neil Adams ripped off Stan and. Stan and Steve a little bit, but uh, but yeah, they they it, this is Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde right, basically. Right. It's yeah, it's you know. a little bit of that. It's a little bit of the Wolfman. It's yeah, basically that same thing. It's that that yeah, that that trait existed before 1960. Oh. Right. I will. I do have another problem though. I mean, the Blackout Gang. We'll call them. They're, they're, they're kind of called the Blackout Gang toward the end of it. Now they're in these underground tunnels under Gotham. And the guy drops the. They go through all this. We've got these, you know. <laughs> they basically got you know, the 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 stuff that seems pretty low tech now. But the, back in the seventies, I'm sure it was really exciting. They've got night vision goggles basically, and they've got, you know, really soft shoes. And 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 Frank Robbins spends a lot of time explaining their gadgets and stuff. I wish he'd use yep. a little more of that to flesh out the man bat. Yeah. Uh, but but they drop that tool, and then Batman hears it and comes in. <laughs> was was Batman on their trail? I mean, I, you know, they needed a line that Batman said, I've been trailing you for weeks or something, you know, because they say, you know, we're doing this so, you know, we don't have to worry about Batman. But has Batman really been a problem for them? Or is it just because they're in Gotham City trying to pull off heists? Are they just worried about Batman? You know, it's like, 
if Batman heard that, it's an awful lot of coincidence if Batman just heard that and came down into the underground tunnels or whatever these underground. They're not like a sewer. They're not wet. I don't know what these tunnels are that they're under Gotham, but <laughs> I, I have that exact same note. I was like, wait, where was Batman? <laughs> like, like, like they just. He just heard the sound of like a gun dropping in this underground tunnel, and he he sprang to like he was there like waiting for. It. I was like, if he has that kind of hearing, he doesn't need bat echolocation. You know, he's, he's whatever Langstrom can give him, he doesn't need that. So it was yeah, it was just the weirdest thing. Like they just like like I mean, at first I was like, wait a minute, is this supposed to be like in a bank or like they they're like pulling some heist and like yeah they drop it and he was like. He was already like scoping it out. It's like, but no, they're in these underground tunnels. Was did he just happen to be patrolling? And like, I yeah, that part made no sense to me. Yeah, it's like he's they're in the utilidors underneath Disney World or something. You know, it's like they're going to pop out next to a trash can or something. I, it's it's really it's really kind of weird. And it's another one of those things I hadn't even thought about before. And it's like, you know, wait a minute, you know. You know, another thing that I didn't bring up with Langstrom, we never get a really clear look at his face, but he seems like, um, I mean, we kind of do when he's putting the goggles on, but by then he's got big goggles or sunglasses, sorry, sunglasses over his over his face. But he looks like an older, like closer to middle age guy that we see here. And that's going to be, you know, when he gets his own strip later, he's going to be, and I think even by the end of this three-part story cycle we're going to cover He's more of your typical late 20s, early 30s, you know, mm-hmm. uh, handsome, you know, uh, young hero type guy, you know, that's in really good shape. And but but, you know, there's a couple of panels where he looks like he's cl- either middle age or close to it. So that's that's another that's another kind of strange, strange little bit there. And yeah, uh, well, for, I mean, yeah, w- once on. once he goes from, you know, you know, foil antagonist to the leading man, then they have to cast him like a leading man. You know, it's right. Right. They got to recast yeah. him. That's right. It's the same thing, you know, <laughs> when when Steve Ditko drew Doctor Strange for a one off. It's like, yeah, sure. He can be Asian. But wait a minute. We're going to make this guy the star of a regular series. Um, he needs to be white for our publisher and our audience. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And just as I joked about in the synopsis, Langstrom is your typical mad scientist type and tests his formula on himself. Now, we again, we discussed is, you know, is he going to use it himself? Is he going to present it to Batman? Is, you know, the whole death. Did that angle come in in the Secret Origins? Is that the. the that's that's what I remember it, but I I can't remember if that was where it debuted. I can't remember if it had been established before that. But I can't remember if it was that one or it was the the year one annuals uh, that were a few years later, uh, like in the mid nineties. Oh, yeah, gosh, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm not sure, but it's yeah. And and then of you know, uh, and then we get the animated series mixed in, and then I'm really getting confused. So. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think the animated series ever talked about the reasoning why, like they. They never got into why he was doing it or why he tested it on himself. I don't think he, his his um, his father in law or I don't know if him and Francine were married at that point, but his father in law was this this uh, kook that looked like Harlan Ellison. That was uh, <laughs> basically, I mean, he was designed to look like I think he was designed to look like Harlan Ellison. That that um, um, said, you know, bats will survive the next cataclysm, and mm-hmm. you know, he basically, you know, one up. Uh, 
the, his his father-in-law basically working on the the bat gland formula and that, that's if i remember i haven't seen on leather wings in a while but that's that's what's rolling around in my head and people our listeners are probably screaming at us if you guys well, know where their stuff debuted let us know in the comment section <laughs> right yeah because it, it's it set it up as if the father-in-law might be the man bat because it, like it, right. it actually showed him destroying some of the evidence that bruce wayne per, uh per, like brought in like with the recording of the bat and everything so it was setting right. it up like the father-in-law was going to be the bad guy and then and then you know kurt you know revealing himself as the man bat was was this twist and then when they brought it back the second time the reveal was that it was actually francine which was i thought was cool yeah woman bat and i love i love in that episode how they show man bat shirtless like always until they reveal oh that's not been kirk all along that's been francine and then when she changes she's got a piece of fabric going across her boobs (laughs) it's like Okay, no, you just showed you showed man bat woman bat titty on uh, kids but cartoon. You didn't guy. know that's what it was, so it doesn't. Yeah. Count. <laughs> so you know, I mean, the first time I was like, wait a minute, they showed her, you know, she showed her she bat boobs on a, on a kids cartoon, and now they're covering it up. So there you go. <laughs> oh, but enough of that. Back to this story. I I I I do like how Robbins he he's he's got all these characters working independently of one another to navigate in the dark i mean that, that's kind of it's an interesting thing to, to do but it's like you know it, it, I, I guess because adams came in with this whole i got a character named man bat i guess that's you know and then you know i don't know how much of the actual plot of the the real story that adams had with him or just like the the character it was just the character, and I, I, I have to imagine that Robin's kind of developed the whole blackout gang, and and you know Batman, you know Batman developing his own, um, you know, basically sonic detection tools, and you know it, it, it's kind of it's kind of interesting to for three different sets of characters to try to develop similar abilities independently of another, and then they kind of collide. I mean, yeah. I know Bat. Batman and the gang are, you know, working against each other, but then Langstrom's over here to the side. Of course, they also happen to go meet at the place where Langstrom's working, which is, you know, comic book coincidence, but comic books are based on coincidence. (laughs) That was actually, that was another thing that jumped out at me was for being the first meeting, the first encounter of Batman and Man Bat they don't start off fighting each other. It's actually a team-up, which is different than what we usually see, you know, when these characters come together. We, they usually start off fighting, and then they realize, oh, you're not the bad guy, and we'll, we can team up. No, this time it's the opposite. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, it's it's, and then they fight each other. That's so what it's just <laughs> in the next few appearances. So, yeah. I, another thing I really liked is the fact that Bruce uses alfred to test it you know to test out his gadget he put he, he yes. like puts on like a little ski mask he's hiding under the table and <laughs> I, I love that idea just from that i extrapolated like all of batman's tech and gear he tests on alfred and there's, yeah. probably, there's probably been some days when alfred has gone a bit oh with a lot of bruises and black eyes it's just like yeah it's like yeah that that battering really works yeah it, it you definitely you, you're a you've perfected your aim yeah just imagine Michael Keaton uh, testing the programmable battering out on Michael Goff, you know, <laughs> that from Batman Returns, you know, it's like, good one, sir. You know, just <laughs> I just watched Batman Returns. I, I finished Christmas off by watching Batman Returns because we got HBO Max to watch Wonder Woman 84. Mm. And we watched that earlier in the night. And then 
I'm like, oh, Batman Returns. It's a Christmas movie, so I, I finished Christmas off watching Batman Returns. That so was in my head. So nice, nice. <laughs> so, what do you think of Man Bat's look at this point? I, I actually, I really like it. Again, this, I mean, we we have that that shared love of that type of like you know old school horror and sort of gothic horror and everything. I like the idea of just like him being a human wearing you know this you know a, a suit and an you know a trench coat opera cape type of thing but having this monstrous visage that he needs to hide that's just that's kind of old school and classic and I, I like that for the same reason I liked you know Tomb of Dracula and a lot of what Gene Colan was doing on that book is a sort of like style and uh and, and appearance so I do like that I mean when we actually see Man Bat, you know, fully formed in in his full development with the wings and the outstretched arms and everything, that is an iconic look that I also love. But this is cool. This is just you know something different that I, I forgot about that he had this incarnation first. So I dig this. Yeah, you know, and as much as I love the animated series, and I and I do like the Bat Man Bat design on there, I do kind of think that because they went real monstrous with Man Bat, mm-hmm. we lost the more human looking man bat and yeah. now that you know now he's just this hideous monstrous giant creature i mean the the creature in the arkham games was just disgusting looking i mean i, I it's just like ugh. Right. you know it's like you know body horror just uh but i i think i'm i'm one of those people that thinks you know if you've got if you go full monster then like where's the humanity in that like the lizard when he looks like a freaking crocodile in a lab yeah. coat it's like you know what, what? That's not even a. There's not even a man left in that, right. you know. It's and it's, ba- that's Spider-Man fighting a dinosaur. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Exa- exactly. Yeah, I, I prefer the weird, you know, lizardy, mm. the 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 humanoid lizard face that Steve Ditko drew, you know. And it's the same thing here. I prefer the the man bat who still looks like there's a human under there because that's more horrific to me than mm-hmm. you know you know full on just beast because then they're like you know where's the you know where's the soul in that thing right. you know it's also, i mean just, it's 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 part of the tragedy like, as we get into the jekyll and hyde thing i mean ostensibly kirk connors and kirk langstrom if you know whenever the retcon was if they were trying to you know develop this you know scientific th- to cure some affliction or to help to benefit mankind uh, but their hubris made them test it on themselves, just like Dr. Jekyll. Then, you know, ultimately they, they suffer these consequences. You need to be able to see their, their soul in their eyes and, and their face, their, that expression to really grasp that, you know, this was a person who could have achieved greatness and benefited mankind. But because they either took shortcuts or their pride or whatever it was, it cost them their ability to even walk amongst humankind. So I think that's just a, it's a, a natural sort of, um, you know, a, a classic archetypal tragic villain type of character, which is why I love the, the original story and why the lizard is one of my favorite Spider-Man villains still. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I, I, I you know, we, of course this is drawn by Neil Adams. Of course it's beautiful and inked by Dick Giordano. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's it's awesome. It's it's just a joy to look at. But I got to point out, I love the the bat layout on page nine. Uh, when 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 after Langstrom sees the horrific uh, image of himself in the mirror on the page that before we get this these three panels up top that are you know in the shape of a bat, and 
his shadow in the middle panel is what's making the the head of the bat. And you know, we'll we'll have to put a scan up so you guys know what we're talking about. We will in the gallery. Yeah, yeah, but the bottom yeah. of the panels have the scalloped effect like the bat symbol or the bat wings, yep. Yeah, that's just that is a great, you know, that's again, that's Adams being the innovative mm-hmm. artist that he was and and really just, you know, remaking the rules for comics and you know, him and Steranko were doing crazy stuff like this left and right around this time. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, Speaking as of, I, was just, I was just reading some of Steranko's Captain America comics last night. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's, that's some great stuff. I love the, the, uh, the, 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 the one splash, the double page splash where caps fighting those guys getting out of the car and yep. they're pulling guns they're, on him. Yeah. Yeah. They're trying oh, to man. drag a, uh, well, Rick Jones says Bucky put him in the car with cap jumps. Yep. Yeah, that's some that's some that's some gorgeous stuff in that cover. I mean, oh, ooh, with the with the I, I pose a lot of my Cap action figures in that pose. You know, my Marvel <laughs> Legends or Caps are posed like that. So you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, as mentioned in the synopsis uh, as well, we we get the uh, the debut of the uh, of our beloved uh, Corvette Batmobile with the the painted on uh, Bat Hood here. Um, because there's a little there's a little blurb that says dig this experimental car and advanced thinking manufacturer offered to Batman for testing, uh, which I think is kind of unnecessary. I think the only reason they put that in there is because they had made a big deal when Batman moved to uh, to to the Wayne uh, Foundation penthouse that. Uh, you know, they had mothballed the Batmobile and all the, you know, extraneous bat gadgets and were going back to basics. So they gave Batman what was supposed to be this nondescript sports car, but I think it was Bob Brown that drew that comic. It's a blue car with a huge yellow stripe running from from hood to trunk and across the top, and it's got a big yellow fin like a boomerang like fin on top of it it's very like, nondescript that is even <laughs> this is way more stealthy than that yeah. and i think adams just drew what he wanted and um you know they said oh well we already established his new car so we've got to put this in there but this will supplant that yeah. so <laughs> thank goodness so <laughs> and like we said there's some some similarities to what we're seeing in the batman that's Maybe eventually will come out. Who knows at this point? <laughs> uh, I, I do have another question for you, though. So Batman comes in on the blackout gang. He tells them, I can hear your heartbeats. Was that a good move? <laughs> um, based on how they counter it? No. <laughs> Way to I mean, just way to to reveal your edge, Batman. You yeah, know, <laughs> I, I think generally you don't want to give away your advantages and let the other person like when you're playing cards, you don't want to tell the other person that you figured out what his tell is, so that you can keep right, right. in for money. But when you rub your eyebrow, I know. You know, it's like, oh, I won't rub my eyebrow anymore, right? You know, yeah, it's like, yeah, exactly. Part, Part of me, I mean, you said that, I mean, Frank Robbins came out with the Blackout Gang, and that might be the case, but part of me wonders if Neil Adams didn't suggest it. It's like, what if the bad guys are just all black, like silhouettes, and we have a lot of shots in the dark, so there's no background? It's like, just things, <laughs> things that the artist can do to, to really make this go a lot quicker for him. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> Because uh, he has to draw a lot of things that are just black 
figure outlines with goggles. <laughs> That's it. Right, right. <laughs> well, we talked about the fact that, you know, Bat, Man Bat comes and helps Batman out, and they actually work together, so so that's really cool. And then, of course, Batman is trying to, you know, to thank his savior, and, uh, you know, Langstrom's just trying to trying to get away, and Batman pulls the flashlight on him. Now, before, Langstrom couldn't stand the light, but this time he just lets Batman shine a flashlight in his face, which I thought was kind of... <laughs> That had to hurt, you know, basically, especially in utter darkness. With some, I mean, a regular human, if you're in pitch black darkness and somebody puts a flashlight in your face, it, it, you know, hurts your eyes. Imagine how he was feeling. So, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, given given that he lashes out and knocks the light away, I, I, I think it's probably that that moment was meant to be much quicker, and it's just mm. the fact that there's so much text in that top panel on the last page. You know, Batman's got two different word balloons, and and that really kind of draws it out and makes it seem longer. But I think probably between shining the light and and Langstrom like knocking the light out, I th- that was probably meant to be much more quicker, a much more reflexive action on the man Bat's part. Maybe that's what Adams was trying to go for. Although if that was the case, he probably should have skipped that, that that top panel and just gone right from the the first kind of like flash where you see him at the at the bottom of page 15 right to page 16 where he's, he's swiping the light away um yeah but yeah in my head i i would reckon that let's just say that was supposed to be almost like a half a second thing but we just get too much dialogue from batman to make that plausible yeah yeah, it, it, that's a good point. Yeah, but and then and if they hadn't done that panel, we wouldn't have got the face to face meeting. You know, where you get to see just how, you know, let's compare Batman. You know, this one, this one's got a guy in a mask. This one, no, <laughs> this one's actually a humanoid bat person. So, yeah, I I do think you know it's interesting. You know, we've we've talked about how Batman has changed and how his portrayal has changed. He was much more passive back then. You know, he lets Langstrom run off. Right. Uh, uh, you know, it's, I'll just let this monstrous bat person who seems unstable run off. My feature is nearly over and the kids have the back half of the book, you know, basically. Uh, you know, so it's just, you know, <laughs> but, I, you know, I mean, I understand he didn't want to, you know, he, he, you know, he just saved him. He wants to give him his privacy. But, dude, he just told you, it, you know, it's 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 probably not a disguise and he's running off. But maybe Batman doesn't quite understand that but he does question you know whether that you know he's is he going to be his friend or his foe moving forward so uh which is a which is a wonderful setup and then of course we get that that blurb you know and it says which will it be and which role will man bat re-enter the batman's life be on the lookout for the man bat in a forthcoming issue of detective comics so they had a lot of faith in man bat you know because i mean you know, although the way comics worked back then, there was no internet for people to come on. I hate this character. You know, this is the worst thing you've ever come up with. And so they had to, you know, the man bat would reappear before the letters for this issue came in, or at least before they were printed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you know, the, I guess Julius Schwartz had done stuff like this before because he had done the outsider storyline uh, in the Batman books, he had done Zatanna's search yeah. in all of his books. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know. So I, I guess he kind of done this kind of long game type thing before. But it is interesting to think that you know they they had enough confidence in the in the in the character, especially after the way Adams tells he you know 
he brought it to Schwartz that Schwartz felt like, okay, this, this, this guy's got, you know, he doesn't have wings yet, but he's got wings. He's got legs. Um, you know, we'll, we'll keep him around. So yeah. That's yeah. Kinda... I mean, it could be like, I don't know if like the scripting, if it was doing the scripting and plotting first in the pencils, I'm assuming that was the way that, uh, that Schwartz went about it, but it might've just been like the way, I mean, just doing a, a slow, origin of this character and by the time he got to 17 pages he's like the story's only halfway done we need we need more so yeah yeah that's true too yeah i i i overall i i really enjoyed reading this again although i told you when we were you know talking back and forth in our little facebook message that oh i've got this issue committed to memory but i didn't (laughs) i i had the power records recap of this story committed to memory but not this one so it was fun to explore it and see what what was there and wasn't there? So what did you think of it overall? Overall, I really, really like this. I mean, I, and yeah, I, still like some of my, some of my uh, like memory, my like what what I think are like powerful, like, you know, fundamental memories of the Man Bat story, I'm now realizing are in the next issue, I think. Um, so yeah, there were, there were some surprises when I got back to this one, but I do love it. And it, like, I've always liked the Man Bat character. I like, you know, ever... I, I actually it was it was on leather wings was the first time I I met the character um mm. cuz I yeah he just he hadn't been in any of the batman stories that I the comics that I had read in the the few years before that um so I was like did they make this character up just for the show and then not lo- not long after I I figured out that he did have a long history and I checked it out and yeah but yeah for those same reasons that we talked about like the the kind of classic gothic uh Jekyll and Hyde you know, dynamic. I've always appreciated that, so I've always liked the character, and and this was a fun story to revisit and, and to come back to and and see what what parts of the memory held up and what didn't. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to the the next chapter. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, that will be uh, that will be next episode, but we've got a whole other comic to talk about, and we're gonna do that after this promo break. Stick around. Justice League International, blah ha ha podcast. A new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue, in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter. Batman. Dr. Fate Black Canary Fire Ice Maxwell Lord Oberon Captain Marvel Rocket Red Captain Adam Mr. Miracle Guy Gardner Booster Gold Blue Beetle Nort And many, many more. Justice League International Blahaha Podcast Part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network Want to make something of it? Batman 452 has a cover date of early August 1990, because it double-shipped that summer. The on-sale date was June 19th. The book cost $1, and it sports a cover by Hellboy creator Mike Mignola and George Pratt that shows Batman leaping or flying or something, whatever, through the Gotham skyline with a very Mignola-esque gargoyle in the foreground. The Batman logo at the top has been customized to include the title of this miniseries, Dark Knight, Dark City, part one of three. What do you think of this cover? I, I like it. I, you know, at <laughs> not to spoil anything, but 
you know, at first glance, this is just a cool, generic Mike Mignola uh, Batman image. You know, it, it doesn't really have anything related to the story uh, until you see the covers for the next two issues. And then you suddenly realize it does. So um, I love the trade dress on this one. I, uh-huh. I just think it's I do think it's really sharp. I, I'm, you know, this is one of those cases where I don't miss the bat motif on, over the word Batman because, you know, it would just clutter it up uh, in this. I, I love the, you know, the dark nights in this, in this, uh, actually it's in a font very similar to the animated series. Um, it is. It has that sort of deco design. Yeah. Yeah. That art deco font. And then dark cities in this like cursive scrawl. Uh, and it's ripped. It's like the the banners ripped, and underneath it, Dark City is mm-hmm. is there. And it's it's a it's it really works well. Whoever designed that must have said, you know, design that about noon, and said, you know what, I'm taking the rest of the day off. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just uh, yeah. But I, the cover's great, and uh, you know, I, I, Mike Mignola was one of those guys that you know, I, it took me a while to kind of to kind of get on board. Actually, it was Gotham by Gaslight that like mm-hmm. totally bought me in on his art style. I, I mean, all, I, all, all of this is actually pretty early in his career at this point. Right. And this is not too long after uh, that. Of course he did the covers for death in the family and he did, he's done a lot of Batman covers, you know, mm-hmm. um, by this point. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, and I always like how he did the, you know, the, he did a lot of, dark shadows around not Barnabas Collins but dark shadows around the the body of Batman and then let the bat symbol like just shine through back when he still had the oval on his chest so mm-hmm. yeah it's it's a sharp it's a sharp color I like the colors I like the reddish hues it's kind of got this hellish feel to it which is appropriate mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah I I love this uh I love the cover just as a, a as a as an image on itself, I, I do. I've always really liked Mignola's style. I remember it from Gotham by Gaslight, which uh, I, I read this one first, and um, and then I, picking up the uh, he he did the adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula for Topps Comics, uh-huh. um, and I love that. And then yeah, like I I was kind of getting away from the Marvel and DC superhero comics in the mid late nineties, and and I was doing a lot more. Dark Horse and other indie stuff, and, and one of the books that I was following, I, I did love Hellboy, uh, and I was following that, and I it really really dug his style there. Um, yeah, for the trade dress, I like it. I mean, it's similar. They they had done customized trade dresses like this for uh, Ten Nights of the Beast, and obviously uh, a Death in the Family, um, like with the font for like the you know setting up the part one of three of like de- denoting what chapter this is in it. Yeah, I just oh, I like this one. This was. Yep. Gosh, my I, I I mentioned it last year when we talked about Detective Six Seventeen was my first com, Batman comic, and then my first time going to the store and picking them off the shelf. I got four fifty and four fifty one at the same time, mm. uh, which was the the Return of the Joker that two parter, and I got both of those. Um, so yeah, this was if I got six eighteen maybe between them. This was like my fourth or fifth Batman comic that I bought myself. Um, wow! Like 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 individual like you know issue, not counting trades or, or graphic novels or anything that that we had gotten like my brother or something. Like this was my fourth or fifth Batman comic. So. Wow! Good good time to jump in, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's talk about it. Dark Knight Dark City is written by Peter Milligan, penciled by Kieran Dwyer, inked by Dennis Yankee, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Adrian Roy, and edited by Denny O'Neill. 
The story opens with a journal entry from one Jacob Stockman in 1793, recounting a horrific event that happened in 1764. Stockman and five other influential citizens of the township of Gotham, including young Thomas Jefferson, gathered in Stockman's cellar, which had been converted to a dark temple for satanic rites and the practicing of devil worship. Into that cellar, the men brought a young woman to be used as a human sacrifice for the conjuring of a demon called Barbathos. Stockman and his companions were attempting to summon Barbathos to capture and control it in a ritual called the Ceremony of the Bat. As Stockman writes in his journal, their sacrificial girl, then completely inebriated by drugs and potions to keep her docile, lay down on the dark altar, and Stockman raised the ceremonial blade above her. Cut to present-day Gotham City, two centuries later, like a living thing, the city watches Batman's shadow fill the skies as the vigilante is summoned to the rooftop of Gotham Police Headquarters. Commissioner Jim Gordon tells Batman that the Riddler called, wanting them both on the rooftop at midnight. The Batman is first to realize they aren't alone. A woman holding onto the side of the roof climbs up and stands on the ledge. She is dressed in lion-skin furs, and Batman compares her to a sphinx, given the head of a woman and the body of a lion motif. As if in a daze, the woman repeats the phrase, "'Generally, my leaves aren't turned at night. Usually, I'm full of worms by day. Lots of words, but deathly quiet.'" Batman and Gordon approach the girl cautiously and try to get her off the ledge, but she leaps backwards into the open air. Quickly, the Batman throws a batarang and the line that wraps around the woman's ankle. He pulls, trying to stop her descent, but only changes her trajectory from straight down to the street to a swinging arc that sends her body crashing through the glass window of an Italian restaurant. Elsewhere in the city, the Riddler has two security guards tied up in a library. One guard is standing precariously with a noose around his neck and a rope tied over a light fixture. The other guard is in a chair and the Riddler asks him, what's sweaty and scared and totally expendable, before putting two bullets in the man's head. In the street in front of police HQ, Batman watches the body of the little Sphinx girl taken away. He wasn't able to save her, so his mind turns to stopping the Riddler. Commissioner Gordon thinks the clues to the riddle of the Sphinx, leaves, worms, words, quiet, refer to Gotham Memorial Cemetery, but Batman comes to a different conclusion, and speeds across town in the Batmobile until he arrives at Gotham University Library. Cut back to Stockman's journal. As he is just about to plunge the dagger into the sacrifice's heart, Thomas Jefferson stops him, believing the sacrifice was only ever meant to be symbolic. He didn't sign on for actual murder. The others argue that the ceremony has already begun, that the demon Barbathos has been summoned. The girl must be sacrificed in order to control the demon. They stop when they hear a most dreadful, unearthly sound. Thomas Jefferson rushes to the cellar door, but when he throws it wide open, a grim shadow blocks their view. Tonight, at the library, Batman confronts the Riddler, who posits the simple question, if he knocks out the hanging guard's footstand, will Batman be able to save him before he dies? He tries it, knocking the stack of books out from under the guard, who drops and begins to strangle. 
Batman leaps into action, throwing a battering that slices the rope, dropping the guard to the floor. The man is still in danger, though. As Riddler runs away, Batman pulls the noose from the guard's neck and begins CPR to keep him alive. Following the guard to the hospital, a police officer tells Batman that the Riddler kidnapped four one-week-old babies from the nursery and left a cassette tape with a message for Batman. Batman plays the tape in the Batmobile. The message, I'm a bank with no money but all different types, leads Batman to the nearest blood bank. In the alley behind the blood bank, Batman drops down on two of the Riddler's henchmen. He takes them out easily, thinking they weren't prepared for him, and that for the first time he wonders if he's getting the drop on the Riddler. As Batman sneaks into the blood bank, he feels that he's being watched, not by the Riddler, but by something else. Then the Riddler announces himself, sitting on top of one of the endless lines of refrigeration units full of blood jars and vials. The Riddler holds a baby, wrapped in swaddling. Batman tells him to give him the child, and the Riddler tosses it to the floor below. At breakneck speed, Batman dives forward, catching the baby just before it hits the floor. In the same fluid moment, Batman rolls over and gets another battering out. He throws it, catching Riddler around the leg. But the baby in his arms starts repeating a recorded message, and Batman realizes it's just a dummy. Then the fake plastic baby explodes, covering Batman in real blood. A series of micro-explosions placed in the refrigerators shower the bank and the Dark Knight in blood, the blasts temporarily blinding and deafening him, leading to Riddler's escape. Batman uses a remote control to summon the Batmobile. It crashes through the wall. Batman jumps in and drives through the front door in pursuit of the Riddler. He sees the Riddler in his getaway car and catches the look of surprise and fear that Batman has caught up so quickly. The Riddler's car turns down an alleyway. Batman chases him and speeds up when he sees a newborn baby lying in the middle of the alley. In frantic desperation, Batman stands on the brake pedal. The Batmobile skids, and Batman is sure that he's too late, but the thunderous car comes to a halt inches before running over the child. Batman, still covered in blood, gets out and comforts the baby, which holds a tarot card for the Hanged Man, the Riddler's pet name for Batman. Batman returns to Wayne Manor to shower and think about all of the events so far and what scheme Riddler is planning, while Alfred, meanwhile, reads the latest clue written on the back of the Hanging Man card. I've still three brats, so plump and round. Hey, bats, let's rip, as in Byron's Parasina. Seek out, less often sought than found. Alfred cracks the code, figuring the rip is actually rest in peace, and the line in Lord Byron's poem is followed by a soldier's grave, thus leading Batman to Gotham Military Cemetery. Once there, as if Gotham City is alive, it feels Batman arrive at the cemetery. It watches as he looks for clues, watches as a zombified corpse climbs out of the grave and reaches for Batman. To be continued. Alrighty, Chris, what did you think of chapter one? <laughs> I I remember, you know, it's kind of funny you ended with that. I remember that, that splash page, the reveal being the house ad. Uh, for this comic with the zombie, <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I remember you know being excited for this thing. Ooh, man, this looks cool. Yeah, this man, this is. Uh, it's hard to it's hard to kind of quantify. I, I think this is like a, I don't want to go too far in it before we could talk about it, but this is a hidden gem of a Batman story. I, I feel mm-hmm. like it's uh, 
it's just I, I'm really looking forward to reading the the other parts because I just got sucked in reading this again. I hadn't read it in probably 25 years, uh, and uh, probably not too far, long after it was published. You know, a few years maybe later or something. And uh, yeah, it's just uh, it's just really it's really well written. It's kind of interesting because it it's taking the books in a very dark direction and you know you and i tend to kind of about some of that but i know i know what the end game of this thing is so i i'm i'm along for the ride because it's because it is unusual the fact that right that things are this dark and that the riddler is this deadly it's explained i don't want to spoil things but it's explained later there's a reason for it it's not just This is the new normal. Everything's this dark all the time. Uh, and but, it's not—it's uh, not compromising Batman. He's not getting darker. It's the events no. around him and the story and the situation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I was kind of in the mood to want more supernatural stories in my Batman because, you know, there was that great uh, prose book, "The Further Adventures of the Batman." Yep. That mm-hmm. came out in '89. Yep. And, yep. Uh, Yep, and it was reprinted multiple times. And my favorite story in that was Gerard Lansdale's Subway Jack. Yes. Yep. But Batman versus the demon that, that mm. had possessed Jack the Ripper. The God of the Razor, yep, yep, yep. The God yep. of the Razor, yep. I think we brought that up before, yeah. that's uh, and, and so this was kind of along those same lines. So I was... I was all for it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, I agree. I felt like this, maybe it's just because it was just a, almost like a fill-in creative team just came aboard. Peter Milligan and Kieran Dwyer didn't do much for Batman. We actually, we did talk about Kieran Dwyer because he had penciled uh, an issue back, like the, the first one after Max Allen Collins. He did that fill-in with Joe Duffy with the whole mm-hmm. samurai thing. Um, and I, I praised Dwyer's art on that, and I was like, I wish he would do more Batman stuff. But instead, he he jumped ship and went over to to do the all long Captain America run uh, with Grunwald. Uh, some some great stuff there. Um, but I feel like just maybe just like they they had this story, and then because the team didn't stick around, this one kind of got forgotten until about ten years ago. Because Grant Morrison, of all people, will will key into some of the events of this storyline and bring this back during his the, the return of Bruce Wayne's story arc after Final Crisis. And then I think the emphasis he put, DC did reprint this, the three uh, the three-parter as a as a soft cover trade paperback, like one of their like 100-page giants that like they did like a retro thing like that. Um uh, like a couple of years well, now it was probably 2011, 2010, somewhere around there. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and then I think, I yeah, and then it's been reprinted in some of more of their, I, I do think there is like a, a, a larger, like official trade paperback or something that has this story and, and some other ones. Um, but yeah, for the longest time, I felt like, I was like, why isn't anybody talking about this story? Because I think this was like a masterpiece. And I, and yeah, we'll, we'll kind of go through, because it's... I, like I, I was, I was surprised that there were events going on in the story. I was like, "Oh man, this is intense!" And they keep on building up. I was like, they, "He's putting Batman through an emotional ringer, and there's a lot of violence in this, and there's still more to come." Like, there's a more famous scene that I think probably a lot of people remember if they remember anything about this one that's coming up in the next issue. So, yeah, it's like Batman in like a David Fincher movie or yeah. something. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like Seven with Batman. <laughs> yeah. So. Like, starting off, I mean, we, we do get this, like, you know, this introduction of, like, you know, the story from, the, like, the 1700s. 
Um, when I watched Hamilton this year, I was hoping that Thomas Jefferson would have a song about this, about the ceremony <laughs> of the bat. Uh, that, that was a bit of a disappointment. Yeah, I, I remember. I remember at the time being it's like, wait a minute, Thomas Jefferson. They're making Thomas Jefferson a Satanist. I, I you know, I was fifteen, and, and, and you know, I had just you know was just kind of learning that our founding fathers may have had feet of clay. You know, they weren't quite what the history books but had portrayed. But you know, a satanic cult. I mean, I, I think Peter Milligan's British roots are showing a bit here. I'll, yeah. just, I'll, just, I'll just put it there. But. But, you know, at least Thomas Jefferson's the one that's like, hey, 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 I didn't agree to kill anybody, you know. <laughs> I also, I always assumed that the Founding Fathers were white, but Hamilton showed me that that was wrong, too. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Black. Yeah. And they can rap, you know. And dance, so. like, hell, oh, man, they were good. They are talented. Uh, the, oh, hell yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I mean, gosh, I, I love Kieran Dwyer's Batman so much. Um, just in like the few first pages when we just get the silhouette and then when he's, he's standing up there on, on page four when he's meeting Gordon and we get a lot of capage, which was the signature of this era. Um, we do get a ton of capage, but I love this panel design with Gordon on the, the corner of the rooftop and how mm-hmm. the, the bottom four panels are designed kind of to, to fit that angle of the roof. I really like that effect too. Yeah, me too. That's that's great, and I agree. I mean, I loved his Captain America run. He mm-hmm. came in. He came in at the at the end of the John Walker's Cap yep. uh, run, and then and then stayed for a long time. And and through you know like the introduction of Crossbones, and when Diamondback was yep. Cap's you know love interest slash sidekick, and and uh, yeah. I, but I, I wish he'd done. I wish he'd done more Batman, but I mean, I ba- he basically drew my two favorite characters at my at, at the two companies. But but I wish he'd got a chance to do uh, mm-hmm. to do more Batman because yeah, he he's great. He's got you know, I mean, it's it it uh, it's it looks very. I mean, it, it's it's very much Batman. It's like you know, I, there's a little bit that reminds me a little bit of what of Graham Nolan's Batman uh, when he comes on. Yeah, uh, yeah. Detective in a few years, and I really liked his Batman. It's just like a really. It's not super flashy, but he's just like there's. He's just got a really good. He's just got a really good handle on Batman. Yeah, I agree. I think like his handle on the characters feels feels very real. Feels very on point. He's got a little bit of the Bray Fogle and McFarlane kind of flash and stylistic, you know, kind of like getting in there. But I also think he can rein it in with like a little bit of Jim Aparo's more like tightness and anatomical, like you know, cur- like you know, fitting in that, you know, that character model sheet. Um, so that's kind of, yeah, he sort of, for me, he's kind of like in this world that's halfway between Aparo and Brayfogle, which is a sweet spot to be in. Yeah, I, 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 there's a little, just a little bit, I feel like his, his his body of Batman with it being a little beefy is a little bit, there's a little bit of Don Newton there mm-hmm. and with the shadows. Yeah, and, maybe I mean, more Newton than, than Aparo, but yeah. Yeah, I, I, I like. I, I really just like. It's a good synthesis, but it's also looks like Karen Dwyer drew it. You know, so, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, he's not aping anybody. He's figured out his own Batman. You know, yeah. it's a little bit different than when we saw him uh, a few years ago. Uh, you know, chronologically wise, and then for our show, but also, but it, you know, he was that was like one of his very first gigs. You know, yeah. so yeah. he's he's had a bunch of Captain America comics under his belt since then. So right, right. Um, yeah, so, so getting by, by page six, we have our first, you know, violent death, and 
for for whatever reason, the colors decided not to make this scene bloody, even though they they really could have been with every other scene. Um, mm-hmm. But when the the girl goes through the glass window, I mean, I remember you know looking at, as a kid reading that, and I was like, oh, she dead. Like he didn't save her. <laughs> like no. like I, I knew I was like, yeah, she didn't go splat on the ground. But I had enough awareness. I was like, at that speed. She's still pulverized, and and like the glass shards would be like the people in that restaurant will be picking picking glass out of their hair for the next month. Like, yeah, that was, that was like really really bad. Yeah, um, and it, you know it's it's interesting because you know you just see this little sphinx for two pages, but she's very interesting. She looks like you know she 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 seems like she's probably meant to be Egyptian mm-hmm. uh, of Egyptian Egyptian descent by her color the yep. the color they choose to to color her. And, you know, she's got a really neat look. You know, you and I talk about how these characters show up in these comics, and you're like, I'd like to know, kind of like the the uh, the uh, tarot card reader in the, uh, the yes, symbol story. Yeah. You know, we'd like to see more of her, you know, right? The fortune teller. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I was trying to get out. Uh, this is another character I'd like to know where this little sphinx came because she probably wouldn't normally dress like this. This is Riddler, you know, drugged her and right. – and, and put her in this outfit, so she looks Egyptian. She looks like the Sphinx, but uh, yeah, she's got she's got a cool look. I mean, she looks like she could like be a, a hero in the Global Guardians or something. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the yeah, the, the darker complexion skin, and then the kind of like orangish brown like animal motif. It, it reminds me of Vixen a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so then we cut to the Riddler for the first hour, and when I read this, I mean, my image of the Riddler was Frank Gorshin. Like, that's who I thought the Riddler was. Mm-hmm. So when I get here, I was like, first of all, I love that he's in the suit with, like, the bowler cap and, like, the domino mask and everything. I I had seen that before because I knew the Riddler wore a suit, like, occasionally. But I still, I mean, when I thought of the Riddler, I thought of, like, you know, the, the body, you know, stocking, you know, tights and everything. Which, to me, like, never really made as much sense for the Riddler. I didn't mind it. I still think it's a cool thing because he's a supervillain in his comic. So I just kind of accept that. But I also... For some reason, when I thought of Batman's rogues, you know, I always thought, you know, the Riddler, he's a he's a mental villain. He's a cerebral villain. He should be wearing a suit, something more natural. It kind of puts him in that, you know, crime gangster category. You know, like the Joker wears a suit, the Penguin wears a suit, Riddler, Two Face wears a suit. Riddler should be wearing a suit too. It kind of felt like more appropriate. So I loved seeing him in this, like in that first page when we see him wearing this outfit. As far as I know, the first time the Riddler in the comics wore. The suit, because the suit was an invention of the TV show. Mm-hmm. The you know, yeah. it, it, the first time he wore it was in that Secret Origin story that uh, Neil Gaiman wrote. Oh, where the, oh, yeah, yeah. So, so where you know the Riddler laments how dark things have gotten. <laughs> Which did that come out in 1990 or 1989? It was 89 when the movie came out. I think. Okay, right? yeah, you're right. I'm trying to, yeah. I, th- yeah. I think so. Yeah, I think it was. So this is this is the first time in a Batman actual Batman comic mm-hmm. that he's got the suit on, and it's and it's you know it. And I think this is the first time we see him uh, with the. Uh, does he got purple pants? Does he have the purple pants in this one, or does he? Yes, yes. We don't see it in the yeah, first he's scene, got but yeah, we don't pants. see it until we, he shows up at the blood bank. Yeah, he's he's got he's got purple pants, which is the look that the animated series went with. Because then the TV show Gordon's dressed Gorsh, uh, Gordon Gorshin's dressed all in uh, his his jacket and his pants are green, covered with uh, right. question marks. 
So this is kind of more to look like, although the animated series didn't bother putting all the question marks on them because they couldn't animate all that. But <laughs> right, uh, this is more the look of pretty much the look that they'll give the the uh, animated series version with a few color alterations. But right. so, yeah, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I prefer the I prefer the suit to the tights, even though, of course, the tights came first. But uh, it just it just it just fits the character better. Yeah. 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 Agree. Um, so, yeah. And and. I, I mean, there, there's a lot going on on this page. First of all, he's got two guards. The black one is the one with the noose around his neck. Okay, all right, we're we're gonna do, deal with that imagery later on. Um, and then, yeah, he just yeah. plugs plugs the other guard, just shoots him in the head, and we see the blood splain on Truman Capote's in cold blood. Yeah, this this guy looks like he looks like he might be Latino mm-hmm. uh, or something. Yeah, he does. He's not, you know, the, he's not Caucasian white like the Riddler. He's He's colored a little bit different, so yeah. But yeah, it's I, that was pretty shocking when I reread this. I'm like, oh wow, I forgot he did that. Shot that dude literally, like as the book says, in cold blood. Just like yeah, and I mean, it, it's you know they don't sh- they show the the panel the the guy's head going back and he's got this anguished scream on his face on his, but you you see blood a blood trail. His his the panel cuts his. The, the wound off you don't see the wound the bullet hole but uh yeah or two bullet holes i guess mm-hmm. but yeah it's pretty pretty gruesome man <laughs> damn <laughs> and then after we get the the other journal entry with the the ceremony being interrupted because hey maybe thomas jefferson eh, we're not gonna make him a super bad guy who's willing to kill a you know a teenage girl sacrifice for a demon um, and then something interrupts it. We'll have to find out what happens there with the next issue. Um, we get back to the library as Batman arrives, and the Riddler is, you know, mouthing off, and he kicks out the things, and the guard starts to strangle. And Batman is free. And I just, I mean, I, I remember thinking that it was very cool, and I, I don't know why, but, you know, again, being fairly young, but I remember thinking it was cool that they actually showed Batman performing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation on another man like yeah because i couldn't like I, I, i've been thinking about like i think even in even in the show baywatch i don't know if they ever showed that they always had a female lifeguard giving mouth-to-mouth to a guy or, or like it, they like yeah i don't know but the fact that yeah, yeah hasselhoff's was, like i'm not kissing that guy exactly <laughs> it was something like that so i was like yeah it's just uh, he has to like that's that's the normal thing he's got to save that guy so the fact that they were showing him giving mouth-to-mouth to another guy black man of all things too and i was just like this is cool that they're actually doing this like that just felt very mature and they were just trusting the audience and the readers to to not freak out about this right yeah yeah it, it's yeah it, it I, I like the fact that like we said this this comic isn't as white as as a lot of comics are uh, at this time you know uh there's there's a lot of different uh ethnicities uh you know on display mm-hmm. in this and unfortunately a lot of them meet grizzly ends or <laughs> or you know in in this poor fella apparently spinal cord is severed so uh, uh but uh yeah you know it's it at least they you know at least they're they're doing something you know this it, again it's not a bunch of white people so that's good mm-hmm. <laughs> uh then batman tracks them to the the blood bank um and yeah, I mean, we're we're seeing him. He's starting to lose his shit. Like once we get to page thirteen, when he's taking out the two rear guards, uh, and you, you see the gritted teeth, and it, it seems like Kieran Dwyer is getting a little bit looser with the art here. He's kind of letting some things exaggerate, especially in that like that third panel in the middle section 
um, where he's not even doing the details. It's just kind of like Batman is just like sinking into the shadows. He's he's like losing his humanity, and he just slams that guy's face into the bricks to get his attention. <laughs> I, d- I do like though. I mean, when I first read that, he's like, "Okay, come on, then, come on," you know, <laughs> and then he says. It's good to know. He says it's good to know they can still fear you when you ham it up a little. So Batman, <laughs> Batman is kind of putting on a little here, but he does slam the guy's head into a brick wall too. <laughs> He's not putting that on. I mean, he actually, and the dude's like blood shooting out of the dude's nose and his mouth. So, I mean, but he, you know, at least they they use it as a tactic. You know, here that that Batman's amping amping it up to basically shake the guy up, but. Yeah, that that panel actually looks like it could be almost a Mike Mignola, uh, mm. you know, Gotham by Gaslight panel right there. Yeah. <laughs> it's like he's it's a kind of this got this ethereal quality to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like that. he's like he's like you kidnapped little kid, you kidnapped babies from a nursery. I'm not messing around. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think that's definitely part of it. Batman's yeah. like, okay, Riddler and all these guys have just they've taken it. You know, they've they they've, they've killed two people already tonight, mm-hmm. and they've crippled another and they've kidnapped babies i'm not screwing around with these people yeah yeah um so yeah we get the the, the first sort of like desperate save is, is where they're just chucks what we think is a baby like down to the floor and batman dives and catches it uh and still like just awesome moment is able to like spin and roll and get that battering around Riddler to catch him in the nick of time you know it would be this epic heroic moment except for the fact that riddler anticipated this and he's got a dummy and the dummy pops, and it's full of blood. And then that's not enough. We've got to blow up the entire blood bank. So it's just showering him, like, you know, blinding him, deafening him, and blood just spraying from all across the room. And I was just like, what the hell, Peter Milligan? Oh, yeah. That's that's nightmare fuel, man. I, I mean, I'm not one of those people that's, like, squeamish around blood, but at the same time, I don't want to be covered in it, you know? I mean, right, it's right. like... It's just uh, and yeah. that one panel, the the third panel in the second row on page sixteen, where Batman is just covered in blood. I mean, he, he you know, it's like, yeah, it, it's like for a brief second, but even Batman's kind of freaking out. I mean, he could yeah. be like trying he's to like wipe his eyes. It. Yeah, it's it's like you, you see the panel before that. He's falling. He's like can't he can't even run through this. Right, yeah, and it's yeah, and I guess that's why I kind of wondered. Well, why did he bring the Batmobile into the blood bank? Uh, but I guess it's like he thought that would easier than trying to run through the slick blood covered floors, I guess, or something. But I, I imagine uh, he makes sure that the Batman's tires have really, really powerful tra- tread. You know, like right, right, the traction shouldn't be a problem. But yeah, like right. like think of like the the opening vampire rave from Blade, with just like the blood showers just coming down. Except this is more of explosion. And yeah, Ooh. Uh, yeah, grizzly. <laughs> yeah. And then you know he he's driving, he's chasing the Riddler, and there's the baby in the road, and he's like, oh god, and like I, in my mind, I remembered this detail, and maybe my mind just like imprinted it because I don't actually remember if it's in the text, but like him like like pushing down on the pedal so hard but his feet his boots are covered in blood so it's like slippery and he wasn't getting that and that made it even more dangerous um but yeah he's like i put my i put foot on the brake pedal i push my foot down hard hard my wheels lock brake pedals on the floor no and he's like screaming as though the wheel is going towards the kid and he says the car comes to a halt i hold my breath my breath I'd felt the bump, the sickening bump, something scraping under the car. Try to shake from my mind the picture. Soft, baby flesh, sharp metal, tarmac. 
then I hear a cry, a single cry, a single beautiful, wonderful cry. And I'm thinking, I like, I wonder if Peter Milligan had read Stephen King's Pet Cemetery before this, because like the, the imagery in his head of like the child being run over. I was like, oh man, I don't need this. Why is this my Batman comic? But blessedly, oh, he saves him and he he, he comforts the kid. Yeah, I, thank goodness. Yeah, it's kind of interesting though. We've talked about, you know, we've joked about Batman like, you know, like basically threatening to run over criminals' heads with a with the Batmobile and mm-hmm. putting their head, you know. And here's a baby, the panel with the the little baby looking at the tire, you know. So it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting that, but like you said, we're we're in dark dark times, but Batman's not the psycho nut that he's become now, you know. So that that's. <laughs> <laughs> At least we've got that. <laughs> and we can actually see him smile when he's holding the baby. He's yeah, it's okay, sweetheart. Trying not yes. to traumatize it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I bet you even dropped the voice when he was talking to the kid, too. You know? <laughs> he, he didn't talk like this. Yeah. It's okay, sweetheart. You're okay now. He probably like, it's yeah. okay, sweetheart. You're okay now. You know, it's like <laughs> when are you going to get bigger? I can put you in a Robin costume. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah then, then he goes home and he's talking to Alfred and they have their debrief and they end up solving it and then I, lo- I love that Alfred has the wardrobe with the Batman costume in there kind of like all hanging up neatly it's very Keaton like looking yes, too yes. it actually it reminded me of Batman Returns yeah yeah it's it, it definitely and this is a couple years before that but yeah it's like this is you know the just the way he draws the cow and there, there was a little bit of that you could tell but, you know, I mean, once that movie came out, I mean, they really did figure out the way that the cow, like, could, like, work, you know? I mean, so, uh, I mean, other than turning your head. Uh, so so I don't blame them for picking that up, you know? And it's like, oh, this is how it actually looks in three dimensions, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with the long ears. I mean, I know they had the movie serials in Adam West, but, you know, this is more the – this is definitely more the modern silhouette of Batman, what it looks like in, in real life. So why not – why not run with it, you know? Right. And I, I, I do like the little um, detail of Alfred wearing a Mister Rogers sweater instead of you know you know the suit jacket and everything, the tuxedo. I love it. Yeah. Like, why would Alfred always be wearing that? You know. <laughs> exactly. It's off hours. You know. It's probably like you know four in the morning or something like that. He's talking to Bruce and he's just like, yeah, I'm just I'm I'm you were out all night. I'm I'm comfy. I was just reading a book or making tea or something. <laughs> right. And, it's you know, I, I like that, you know, both stories we covered, Alfred really helps Batman out. You know, he actually he plays an integral part to to, to figuring, uh, you know, he, 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 he Batman's use, you know, Batman uses him as a confidant, as a, as an aide and more that he's not just dusting the Batcave, you know, or right. bringing him a sandwich. You know, he's he's actually and here he actually helps him solve the riddles, which I mean, that's another thing we need to point out. The riddles are really well done mm-hmm. uh, in this, and and as other writers, I know Chuck Dixon has said the Riddler's extremely hard to write because you got to you've got to write you've got to write riddles that are difficult enough to briefly stump Batman and the sometimes Batman figures them out right away, but to briefly stump at least Gordon and Robin, if not Batman and. And the reader, but also that you can actually, oh, yeah, you know, when you when they present what the answer is, you can like it makes sense. So that's not an easy thing to do. And, you know, every time you use the Riddler, you got to come. You can't just do one riddle. No, you've got to do like four or five per issue at least. Right. right. And he's using them over three issues. So. (laughs) 
So we get to the last two pages, and, and by this point, we've had this weird sort of framing flashback sequence involving the Founding Fathers and a, a satanic ritual in the 1700s. Then we've got uh, the Riddler back, super violent compared to what what we've ever seen him before. You know, this is a much darker story. We have had people being killed, people being murdered in bloody fashion, children endangered, and for the last two pages, sure, zombies. We're going to throw zombies into this story, too. <laughs> yeah, all right. To be continued, where are we going next? <laughs> right. I mean, you know, it's it, it, it. this could nowadays, it'd be like, oh, great, zombies. You know, but back in 1990, nobody was, like, just worn out with zombies like they are now. Right, so right. it was, you know, it was, it was, it was kind of cool to see, oh, cool, zombies. You know, because, I mean, the whole Gotham narration thing is – it comes and goes throughout the story. I mean, Milligan does a good job of of jumping between like the the narration from um, uh, Jacobson or whatever the guy's name is at in you know sem- at in the 1700s to uh, the Gotham narrating it to Batman narrating it, and um, you know they use different fonts. Although I will admit the cursive font from the the confession of the you know the the lap Satanist uh, it, it's a little hard for me to read because. <laughs> Uh, my, yeah, my eyes are getting a little weaker. <laughs> I was like, I, yeah, I don't even remember having that. Problem. I didn't have that problem when I was ten, but you know, <laughs> you know, thirty right, years later, right? Same here. Yeah, I didn't have that problem back then either. But now, yeah, it's a little bit. But uh, yeah, but I like that. You know, and, and nowadays they've kind of perfected that thing in comics. Like I think about the Superman Batman comic where they would have like, I thought it was a little overdone, but every caption of superman and batman would have their symbols in it and you know different colors and and here it's, they use the fonts that are different but i mean it, they balance it well and it, it works it's never you know who's even though you don't really know what the deal is with gotham at this point it's it's very strange that gotham's narrating it but hey we just covered a story where the bat cave was sentient basically so you know what do we know right uh, <laughs> exactly but but, but, uh, but yeah it, it's it's well done it, it's 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 not you know, I, I never stumbled over. Well, who's talking here? Because there's there's been plenty of comics that have jumped back and forth where I have. You know, so I think everybody, the letterer, um, the production department, all involved, the colorists, they they all did a good job of of keeping things straight. And I bet, I mean, I would give some of the credit to that to to Denny O'Neill. I mean, we 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 took him to task more than a few times. You know, when we started this podcast and very early on in his run as the editorial steward of the Batman universe, we saw some problems and there was definitely a learning curve and there, there were some issues. Um, but you know, this is a couple of years later and I I think by this point, you know, he, he's in full swing. And I think some of the qualities of the Batman stories around like 89, 90, and then going forward up through, you know, the whole nightfall saga, we'll see how tightly he was running the, the, the books and things like that. So I definitely think at this point, I, I think O'Neill probably deserves some of the credit for making sure that that clarity, you know, when you have multiple narrative voices throughout a story, you know, Daniel O'Neill was probably like, okay, we need to make sure this is really crystal clear so it's not any confusion. Right, yeah, I definitely would. Yeah, De- Denny's definitely found his his editing legs on Batman by this point, definitely, yeah. It, we're in the we're in the, the it's running like a well-oiled machine mm-hmm. at this point, so yeah. <laughs> um any final thoughts for this story before we move on? I you know, I will say this, normally I do not 
uh, when we do these comics, I do not read ahead. I went ahead and read the other two parts of this one because I just wanted to. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I was that hooked on this. So uh, I'm like, man, I haven't read this in years. And, and I was just, I was really super excited. Well, I, mean, I was super excited to start it. But once I got to the end, I'm like, okay, I, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to go ahead and read the other two parts. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Glowing <laughs> endorsement for the next couple episodes. It's been so That's long right. since I felt like that. <laughs> I know. It's like I, I just spoiled everybody. Well, I thought Chris might be cranky about this one, but now we know he likes it. So I was like, nah. <laughs> I never finished a Max Allen Collins issue thinking, oh, I can't wait to the next one. <laughs> oh, no. I, I put it off as long as possible, man. I. <laughs> No, I'm really looking forward to covering these other two. There's some, there's some, some really cool, crazy stuff going goes on in those comics. So. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, all right, folks, uh, we're going to take another promo break, and then we will be back with your feedback from the previous episode. Stick around. <laughs> Hey there, welcome to the Mirror Factory. I'm the foreman, Max Romero, so let me tell you a little bit about what we do here. The Mirror Factory is a podcast where we talk about your favorite passages from novels, novellas, and short stories. Each episode features a different guest, who will tell us a little about the book their passage is from and why it means so much to them. Then that guest will give us a special reading of their favorite passage for our listeners. If you think you'd like to be a guest on The Mirror Factory, drop us a line at Factory Mirror on Twitter, The Mirror Factory on Facebook, or at mirrorfactorypodcast at gmail.com. The Mirror Factory is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Time to get back to work. Until next time, read a book. On the last episode, we discussed a pair of Christmas-themed stories. First, Silent Night of the Batman by Mike Friedrich and Neil Adams from Batman 219, and then And in the Depths by Dave Gibbons and Gray Morrow from Christmas with the Superheroes number 2. Chris, I, I didn't think of this until I was editing the show, uh, but you, you had asked at one point from In the Depths if the story had to be set at Christmas time. Like, if you if they had changed that, could the story have been plopped in any issue, whenever, uh, and it mm-hmm. wouldn't have had the Christmas theme. There was one thematic element about the story that I did think made it important for Christmas, um, and that is, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, so apologies to the Waiting for Doom guys, um, in the normous, norm, Northern Hemisphere, we celebrate Christmas during the darkest time of the year. You know, it's mm. right around the winter solstice. It's, it's, you know, there's more darkness and nighttime than there is day. Um, so I, for that point, to, to have Christmas as a celebration of goodness and happiness and joy, and we celebrate it with lights and decorations and, and stars, and we bring these things, it does feel like a deliberate attempt on the part of people and society to inject some kind of light when it is darkest and coldest in the world. And that felt like a, a kind of theme that was running through the, the story, too, that Gibbons and, and Morrow were trying to say. That, you know, when the Bat Cave is, and Batman himself is at its darkest, that's when he needs the light of his sidekick, a Robin type of character. So, yeah, I, I thought of that later. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, you're right. It is definitely the the darkest time of the year because, you know, you look outside at five o'clock and it's like, crap, it's already night, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's, that's a good point. It's kind of funny because, you know, 
uh, I didn't know when we did this one because we we recorded this one. Or, you know, it came out early in the month and then recorded it a little early. But you know, it was uh, around uh, was about a week week before Christmas that you could like see the the star of of Bethlehem or what they assume is the star of Bethlehem in the sky like for the you know the first time like it's like every 800 years you can see it like like super visible and and uh so we were like you know looking around it was clear here that night like looking around I forgot what oh. date the date was but uh you know it, it was so I I don't know what light what star they saw on it over the years in the the bat cave story but apparently it might not have been the actual one but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> and all the different times Diddy O'Neill used it as a device in his Batman Christmas stories, uh, but uh, yeah, but apparently it was you know it was actual actually visible. Uh, so the Christmas star, the star of Bethlehem. So you're um, lucky it was it was overcast here. We couldn't see anything. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, we got to, yeah we 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 thought we saw it, and then we looked online and go, no, that's not it. And we were like standing out in the yard and uh-huh. like okay, there it is. And I think I think we finally I think we finally saw it. So uh-huh. uh, they say, well, we saw it, uh, but uh, yeah. So it was kind of you know we did all that talk about it. I had no idea that was a thing this year until after we recorded that episode. So there you go. Yeah. So <laughs> I used to I used to get a big kick out of astronomy. I used to love being able to like to see Venus and Mars in the sky, and you know like if they were like crossing paths or something and they were nearby close to each other i always thought that was really cool so. mm-hmm. yeah i used to have a telescope when i was a teenager and i liked to it wasn't a very good one but i had one and it mm-hmm. was it was fun to do that yeah all right getting into your feedback from last episode paul hicks from the dc ocd cast and the gary show said god ryan after you begged me not to cover battle for the cowl on dc ocd you don't even mention it as part of your upcoming schedule what the hell have I have I mentioned how much I hated Battle for the Cow? Have I talked about my very visceral reaction, throwing, chucking the copy of issue two across the the house, wanting to set it on fire? Have I done that? <laughs> I've never even read it. I just stayed it's, the hell away from it. It's so. so bad, it's so bad. <laughs> There's no damn Battle for the Cow. Dick Grace, if Bruce Wayne's dead, Dick Grayson's Batman. Get over it. That's I mean that's. That's the end of it, people. You know, it's <laughs> uh, Vinkman wrote in to say the most unique Batman related Christmas gift I ever received was a Batman Returns vehicle play tent, which was a huge plastic vinyl tent thing that was in the shape of the Anton first Batmobile. My strongest memories of Christmas 1993 was waking up and finding this giant Batmobile already set up in the living room. And then because Christmas landed on a Saturday that year, I remember watching Saturday morning cartoons from inside that Batmobile. Oh, that's really cool. That's a cool story. I remember that thing. I don't think I had it, but I think maybe my cousin did or, or somebody I knew had it. Uh, and didn't set it up to like sleep in, but like had it like in his room or basement or something. And like we we got in like pretended like we were driving around like it was the Batmobile or something. But I remember that thing. That was cool. That's cool. Now it would be really cool if it shot off the the side shot off and you became the Bat Missile. But, <laughs> yeah, you know. yeah. Seriously. I was like, why doesn't it have working Tommy <laughs> like mini guns in the size of Papa? <laughs> Can the nose at least shoot out like a missile, like the toy? <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Uh, Brian Linton said, when I think of Batman singing Christmas carols, I imagine him doing so in the style of Batman's untitled self-portrait song, a.k.a. Darkness from the Lego movie. No parents! Right. (laughs) Uh, 
Uh, Brian also said, my favorite Batman present was a Batman the Animated Series alarm clock. When the alarm went off, the bat signal would flash on the ceiling and a dramatic voice would say, Gotham City is in trouble. Call for Batman. It was a big hit in my college dorm. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best part of that story. It was a college dorm alarm clock. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that that is cool. Yeah. You know, I had a Batman. I think I had that, but the one I had never worked. I got it uh, for Christmas, and uh, it, it the bat signal never worked. And I can't, I think I've got it around here somewhere packed away, and, and uh, I don't know why we didn't return it. I, I, I think it was ordered from a catalog or something, and it, it, it wasn't. It seems like we may have even, like they may have sent another one, and that one didn't work or something. But, yeah, so it. I, I I envy you, and and I would have been in college too at that time, so don't feel bad. But <laughs> uh, Martin Gray said, "Well done on spotting that likely baby bump, Chris. Mind, given it's not a big one. Let's hope the woman soldier boy hasn't been away too long. Mind that would explain why she's so depressed without the need for a note wrongly claiming he's dead." <laughs> Oh, whoa. Uh, I think I'd heard that pregnant women were banned by the commas code, but forgotten again. Why should this be? Well, you know, they didn't show pregnant women on TV shows back then. And I mean, it was just it was just I don't know. There was something, the, uh, the at least in the American culture, that if you were pregnant, you were basically supposed to hide for nine months, I guess. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that was. It was it was barbaric and archaic and who knows. But. Uh, Mark continues, that final panel with Batman swinging out into the morning light is probably absolutely correct in the way it's drawn. The problem may be the coloring, but it looks awkward as heck to my eyes. Suddenly that Marshall Rogers splash at the end of the Silver St. Cloud sequence doesn't look so bad. Did you have a problem with that panel, Ryan? No. I mean, I like. I mean, it, like, I think, I don't know, maybe his, his foot is kind of coming forward and a little weird, but I, I know I, I've never had a problem or an issue with the framing of it. Hmm. Uh, talking of, I didn't either. So yeah, talking of art, there's an interesting letter in this issue critiquing the debut of inker Dick Giordano over Irv Novick from Klaus Janssen. Hmm. Well, that's uh, well, you know, no offense to Klaus Janssen, but I've never liked his inking. So you know, the, <laughs> so, I know, I know, guys, he's a legendary comic book inker artist. I've just never been a real big fan of his style. So. You know, I take Dick Giordano, even older Dick Giordano, with bad eyesight, and you know, over Klaus Jansen. So there. <laughs> uh, for, for me, it it largely depends on who he's who the penciler is, and and what kind of work, how heavy he's being. Um, I, I I think Klaus Jansen has done a lot of terrific work, but yeah, not not always. I've, I've definitely seen sometimes where it seems like this was ill fitting. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, kind of yeah, I mean, I, I will acknowledge that he is a fantastic artist. He's just not my particular mm-hmm. cup of tea. But right. uh, it's like him and Tim Sale. I get it. I people love their work, and I understand it. I just don't personally care for it that much. But yep. and uh, then Martin went on to share how much he did not like and, and in the depths, describing Gibbons text as torturous and even Morrow's artwork as uninspired. Then Martin said. How fascinating that the Secret Origins issue with the JLA HQ story came out at the same time. Ghost of Stone was so much more fun than its Gotham cousin. Thank goodness the two caves never teamed up in the Brave and the Holes. <laughs> uh, to, 
to that, to that uh, Captain Entropy replied, you mean the caves in the holes, Martin, with guest appearances by Cave Carson, World War II's grave digger, Captain Boomerang, because his name was Digger Harkness, and the original Blockbuster. Working together for the first time to counter a threat from deep beneath the, earth sur- the surface of the Earth, this dolomite duo of cavernous crusaders will plumb new depths to collapse the sp- the sp- speleological schemes of, of... And he said, help, does anyone know a DC equivalent of the Mole Man? So. <laughs> Just borrow the Underminer from the Incredibles. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> love that fun. I, you know, I still haven't watched The, the Incredibles 2, and I love that <gasps> first movie so much. I'm just, I'm waiting. I'll, I'll watch it with Reese sometime, but... Oh yeah, it's it's great. I it's one of those sequels that doesn't really slip a bit, in my opinion. That's it's, cool. uh, yeah, I, I love it. I love both of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Captain Entropy came back with his own comment. He said, "A Christmas present from the Nightcast crew, gentlemen." I skipped commenting for one episode, and I feel like I've been gone forever. I enjoyed this episode and the last one, so thank you twice. I agree that Batman can carry poetry, symbolism, and even spirituality better than most long underwear characters, both in these Christmas stories and the Brayfogle romp last time. I really appreciated your willingness to discuss them at those levels. Chris, I'm super glad to hear you're healing well. Please keep taking care of your shoulder so you can enjoy the holidays. How are you feeling? <laughs> I'm feeling pretty good. I, I actually did, I think, re-injure it a little bit. Uh, lugging Christmas trees around, but it's it's gotten better since then, so I think we're okay. That's so. good. <laughs> uh, and then he says, Ryan, regarding your response to my comments defending the the Dei Ex Machina from bef- the episode before last, upon reflection, Strange placing the gadget for Batman to find is one unlikely event too far, even for my generous reader nature. So on that point, I concede. I admit that you were right and I was wrong. Who says there's no such thing as a Christmas miracle? <laughs> You know, folks, I'm not going to begrudge anybody. You you all have your various feedback styles, but this is the kind of feedback that I like when we get a letter saying you were right and I was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) The 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 vapor analysis meter thing has become. It's like this is like the old Batman and the Outsiders. Uh, letter column where people were arguing about if Metamorpho should know if Bruce Wayne's Batman. Uh, it just keeps going on and on and on. I mean, we haven't we talked about that book like three or four months ago, and we're still talking about the freaking vapor analysis meter thing. It's like holy cow! So yeah, it's just somebody bring it up next time so we can mention it again. <laughs> Find a way of making it a running joke. We just keep coming back to it. Yep. And finally, Rob Kelly from our network said, For your information, the Joker carves his face into a mountain story is from Batman number 353, a mountain comic. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Of course it was a mountain comic. He carved his face into a mountain. Now, was it one that Rob read at his mountain retreat? I guess so. We'll have to, you know, it's uh, at beautiful Mount Airy Lodge. I guess so, yeah. I'm going to have that damn Poconos theme stuck in my head. Beautiful Mount Airy Lodge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was singing that one day. I'd listened to a mountains comic and I was just like singing that jingle and Cindy's like, What the hell is that? And I'm like, Oh, that's Rob's uh Mountain Comics theme song and she's like, Oh, <laughs> I was like, it's a cheesy 70s, 80s radio jingle, you know? Yeah. It's like... <laughs> uh, 
Good times. Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks. Uh, that wraps up the feedback for this one, and that wraps up this episode. Uh, we hope you enjoyed uh, Man Bat and the first chapter of Dark Knight Dark City because we're not getting rid of them. We're coming back to them again next month. So uh, look forward to that. Um, in the meantime, yeah, we're recording this very early into 2021, and I, I mean, yeah, it, it, th- things are not going to look different for a little while, but we really, really hope that uh, things pick up for you however they need to, personally, professionally, whatever. We, we hope this is a much better year and that things start to resemble normalcy within a couple of months. Amen. Take care, everybody. Happy New Year. See ya. Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at supermatespod or email me at supermatespodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on how you can support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. You can also support us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Every review helps iTunes push this podcast to a wider audience. Batman Nightcast is also available on Spotify. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening.